grab the material, that might be a good idea. I could wing it, that hasn't ever worked well for me. Um, and there's my clock, here's my water. Uh, and I got lights all over me, which is weird. I hope they work. Dave and uh, Terry have changed things a little bit, hoping to get rid of some of the issues we have until we get more equipment in here, which will be coming soon. Uh, really fast. Uh, I'm sure it's happening no matter where you are now in the United States, but um, I made the comment that I see the coronavirus, even though it's uh, an unprecedented in my lifetime pandemic, I see it um, causing more economic collapse than anything else. So, Pay attention to what's going on in Europe. I said it last week. The United States is in great difficulty. There's no question about it. We have printed so much money that eventually the money that we have has loses its tangibility. We're headed into a digital, digital system. These kids today, none of them even know what cash is. They all have a card. They all have a phone. That's how they function economically. That's an incredibly fragile system. It has no, again, no physicality to it. It is exactly what the uh, Apostle John said would happen. It'll be, it'll be very easy to control all economic activity in a central location. So a worldwide economy is on our way. And so what you watch is the collapse of the physical or the tangible economy to make room for that. I see Iran is now uh, uh, active again. Israel and Iran are that scientist, the nuclear scientist that was electrocuted, not electrocuted, uh, he was eliminated by a mechanical device that was remotely fired from all the reports that I have read. Now, that may or may not be true, but that tells you warfare is going to change as well until something causes an infantry issue and gets rid of all of this mechanization and automation. So execution by remote is uh, apparent today. It, uh, I don't believe it will prevail ultimately because of Ezekiel 38. Okay, enough of that. Where are we today? It is December the 6th, I think. It is 2020. I hope it's lecture discussion number 123. Who can really know? On the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Uh, we're still messing around a little bit, but I say, but I say we, I mean me again. I'm messing around a little bit in Job. I really don't need the glasses now. I can see no one past the camera. <laughs> so it's not of any value at all uh, to me. From time to time, as you know, I mention it every now and then, I receive advice. Uh, sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's less than helpful. And distinguishing between the two is an instantaneous thing for me. It's immediate. The less than helpful usually begin with dear idiot person. So I know this is going to not necessarily be valuable to me. Maybe. Sometimes it is. The helpful, and that's just a... Uh, uh, a metaphor for how they begin. The helpful questions, they ask questions. They ask these kinds of questions. Why do you handwrite your lectures? Because I handwrite my lectures. All of that. Handwritten. I've done it all the way back many, many years. I'll get to that in a minute. But why do you handwrite your, your lectures? We have computers, they tell me. At least get a typewriter. And when are you going to answer all these questions that you ask? I, I, that's probably number one on the hit parade. Is that the one you send me all the time? Oh, that's hard to find the answer to. <laughs> well, that's true. And then this one is also in the top three. Do you own more than five shirts and one pair of pants? Uh, four ties. The answer is not really. I, especially since I'm the incredible shrinking um, person here. There's 174 point four today. And I started, when I started, I was 250-something. Do I weigh less than you? I don't think so. Well, if I weighed less than you, that would be bad. Yes, it would be. Okay, I, I handwrite these lectures. I've done it for as long as I can remember because it's more efficient and, and it also transfers the information to me and I get to read what this person says and I reread what this person says before I stand up here. Just in case, he is the idiot person. I need to know. I make mistakes. 
okay, I really, I, I no, I'm not sure. Never mind. But I'm when I do it, I'm able to remember and therefore organize all the directions that I go. As you know, I intentionally go in different directions. I'll do it again today. I have tendencies to chase rabbits. I used to draw rabbits on the board. Oh, uh, really quickly, as I'm talking about the board, cliffsideoffice at gmail.com is where our internet address is going to change, or our email address, I guess. That's correct, right? Email address? So uh, we'll keep that on the board. It'll be a while, but that's where we're headed. And if you sent something to that today, then we would get it. We'd actually look for it. So it's, but we're losing the internet that we have. Uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, most of them, as I said, economic. But when I do all of this rabbit chasing, I produce a, a, a number, a numerous amount of threads that I didn't have to chase down and wrap back up again. And so if I write it down, as I've done for over 30 years or 35 years, actually I thought about it, I was teaching high school 40 years ago. And this is how I did it. Because there was no other way. Well, you could type it. They had IBM Selectrics. But I couldn't, uh, I couldn't type it, and it made no sense to me. It was like reading a book. And so this way, I, I, as I said, I assimilate it. My recovery system functions, if you want to think of it that way. And I keep my place this way as well, mostly, sometimes, okay, never. <laughs> but, but I think I do, and it's um, emotional. It's, you know, I, I believe that I'm doing good, and that uh, makes me fake it better. Okay, typically... I construct an outline on the lecture that I do for you who want to know what is all of this about. If you look around the outside right here, all this tiny little writing, that's next week's outline. And it's on every single lecture. So every time I write one, I write the outline to the next one on this one so that I can remember. Because I'll look at it, it's on the first page, I'll remember what I need to keep going with. Uh, reminding myself is what needs to continue, what I need to drag along or requires what I think is more attention. So with that, believe it or not, Ripley, how old are you? If you know, that's funny. I actually every week reread every outline. That's what I do. And that's pertinent to the subject at hand. When I was doing uh, high school teaching, you had to have a lesson plan. You had to turn your lesson plan in in advance of the year. Well, that didn't work well for me. They would come in and adjudicate my class. They would have my lesson plan. And it didn't have any semblance at all. And so they would say to me, this is not in your lesson plan. And I said, maybe it is. Let me see the lesson plan. And I'd have one word that said something. I said, there it is. There's my one word. But I actually reread every outline that's pertinent to the subject at hand in order to... Again, glean anything that I might have set aside inadvertently, and, and it, I know now that it's got to come into to play at least in some future lecture, if not this one. In today's example, this was all the lectures that went back to July the 7th, 2020. That's what I reread in order to prepare this one. And obviously, that's way too much material to put in one dissertation or whatever you call what I do. And so much of it has accumulated, and so culling, I have to cull out things and assign priority. And so that's my process for those of you who want to do, or want to know how I'm doing this and why it's so weird. And here are some today that I believe require more emphasis, and that is John 11:25. I cannot overemphasize John 11:25. I used to, every time I did a funeral, I made sure I quoted John 11:25. Because it's a question. I am the resurrection and the life. It's two parts, as I said last week. Do you believe me, is what he said. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this, John eleven twenty five? If you, you answer that question, whether you recognize it or not, that verse contains the two incredible promises that I mentioned as well. I have to, I believe that I need to say it a little bit more forcefully. There are two incredible promises of Christ to those who believe him, who say, yes, I believe you, 1125 John. You answer yes to, yes, answer yes to John 1125, you are now going to get two incredible promises given to you. That is the resurrection of your body or the resurrection of the body. And that is the continuity or the continuing 
of your consciousness. I got a wonderful call the other day. What time was it? Not this morning, yesterday morning, three o'clock in the morning from a young man uh, whose mother has Alzheimer's. And so we talked about consciousness, the soul, uh, a little bit of physics, as much as uh, we could fit into in an hour at three o'clock in the morning. When those calls come in, they're almost always pretty, how do I put it, sad. So, those promises again, the resurrection of your body is coming if you believe him, What he, if you answer yes, the continuity, the continuing of your soul, your mind, your consciousness, your memories, your personhood, your qualia, it's called in psychology. All of that continuity of the soul is the other promise. It's a two-phase statement. It's not the same subject in both things. In other words, it's the resurrection of the body is not equal to... Uh, uh, the life. I am the I I am the resurrection. That's one, and the life. That's the other. They're two different things. John, because he defines them, and I'll get to that in a minute. John eleven twenty five is a direct statement from God Himself. This is God who says that, referring to those two promises, those two guarantees. Now, my question for you this week is, where does God say that he is the resurrection and the life other than John 11.25? Where does he make these promises to somebody? Because he does. We can find him making these two promises in, in Scripture. So, see if you can find it. I'll give you one. One is obviously the thief on the cross, right? He told him, you will be with me, not your body, because you are not your body. You are your mind, your soul, your consciousness, your spirit. The body is just the manifestation of you. The personhood resides in the life or the spiritual aspect. The resurrection speaks of a physical thing. The life speaks of a spiritual thing. Physical, spirits, duality, substance, dualism, Genesis 2-7, all of that. So find out where else did he say it. What did he promise the thief? He promised the thief continuity of the soul. Again, it needs to be said that existence has been given to the lost. They get existence. They have existence. Uh, All living souls are eternal. All living souls have what we would call existence or what we would call life. That is not what Christ, life uh, as Christ, as, as Jesus defines it, is not that. It is reconciliation to the Creator Himself. Life, true life, eternal life is in the presence of God. If you are not in the presence of God, you do not have life. You have existence. You have destination, but you do not have life. Death then is described as the opposite of life. If life is reconciliation and in the presence of God, the Creator, then death is isolation, dividing of you, separation, if you will, from the living God. You have been divided out. I'm fascinated all the time that Christ talks about the sheep and the goats, and he separates the sheep from the goats. He divides the sheep from the goats. The sheep are put on his right, and the goats are put on his left. They go to two separate definitions, I'm sorry, destinations. I'm fascinated by the fact that those who do not seek to reconcile to their Creator, who want to be isolated, separated, divided from Him, are on the left. I don't think it's an accident that Marx and Engels describe their philosophy as left. Anti-God, if you will. Always, but the whole point of that, yea, a whole point of that, always keep in mind God's definitions, His meanings of life and death, not ours. Don't interpose ours onto His meanings. His meanings are far more complicated than ours. John 11.25 is Christ declaring Himself to be the breath of life in Genesis 2.7. I am that life, He says, that hit that body of Moses. I'm sorry, of Adam. I breathed my life into Adam and he became a living soul. He also describes Himself as life with with respect to the animal kingdom, 120, 121, 124, 130, 722 of Genesis. Same word, nefesh kayah. He is that breath of life. He says so. I am the resurrection and the life. Again, two different things. He's the one who's going to resurrect the body of all living souls, some to life, many to the great white throne of judgment, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, where there are the openings of the books. And if your name is not in the book, And he's the one that writes the name. He's the author. 
then that means that you have chosen to reject him. Okay, that's one thing I wanted to retrieve, emphasize, drag along, move to this one. I didn't think I covered it adequately. So what's next? Now we're to Job again, back to Job. Two things to cement that are on the horizon here. Job 1.12 One of the beholds. Always look at those beholds for months. You see a behold, you're in for a month at minimum, maybe a year, maybe a lifetime. Behold all that he what God says to Satan. He's saying this to Satan. Behold. So this is something greatly significant. God's saying this is significant. Everyone listen to what I'm about to say. The entire angelic host and now we have it written down in scripture so we should listen to what he's saying. How complicated do you think this will be? Behold, Satan, all that he, Job, has is in your power, in Satan's power. I'll read it more accurately. Behold, all that he has is in Satan's power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. Now that's very interesting. All that he has, you can take it. Don't take Job. Now why is that a behold? Because Satan is given permission to do something that he needs permission to do. Let's continue. In other words, Satan wants to remove the supposed hedge from Job. Job 1.9 He says the only reason that Job is uh, like he is is because you have made him that way and you are keeping him that way and I can prove it. And so this is occurring again in front of the entire angelic realm. So, the protection of God, I guess, is what you could call it. I have many people that say that I can walk through this world and I'll never be harmed because I'm protected. It's the Apache Syndrome. I don't know if you're familiar with the Apache Syndrome. But the Apaches are the, uh, the warriors and the indigenous people. They believe that if you put war paint on your face that you would not be killed in battle. And everybody who made it back, who survived, all had war paint on their face and none of them were killed in battle, therefore proving the premise. They were protected by the war paint or by whatever they believed valued the war paint or the painting on themselves. Obviously, it's not rational, is it? Uh, We're in a situation now where, where there's a great deal of circumstance out there that can impact some of us more than others. I'm particularly vulnerable, as you know. I am the most fragile in this room, for example. Not a great cohort necessarily, not a large amount of people in this room. That would be three of us. Lori's hiding in the office so the dogs don't bark. So far we have not had the phone go off. That's a miracle. I wonder how that's happening. Yeah, that's right, I just jinxed us, didn't I? The phone's going to go off. And we have five phones here. Why do we have so many phones? Because it usually goes off when we're doing something that we can't go very far away from, you know, like rebuilding the entire stair system. So we reach for the closest phone. That's how it works. Where was I? Satan is given permission to remove the hedge or the protection of God. Is there really, I said, supposed hedge, supposed protection of God. Does God protect you from the impact of gravity? How much will do you have is ultimately the question. If you say that I can do whatever I want and God will never let anything bad happen to me, then you, I'm afraid, are on very thin frozen materials. He will let you use your wisdom. If you think that uh, you can defy gravity or you can walk into, uh, uh, I don't know, whatever scenario you wish. You could walk into an area where there's a great deal of danger to you and he will supernaturally walk you through it. He does not do that. You have to ask yourself, why does he not do this? He didn't do it with Job. He didn't do it with Adam. Will he do it at some point? In other words, will we, will we live in an environment that has all these kinds of problems removed from it? And the truth to that is yes, we will. 
Why is there a difference? Why is this environment, this condition, this period of time different from the resolution to it? What is the difference? Okay. First question with regard to only do not lay a hand on his person, but he places Job into the hands of Satan. Here's Job. Don't hurt Job. Take everything he's got. Most obvious of the obvious question is why did God permit Satan to attack Job? What was his reason? What were his reasons? How many reasons does he have? I will give you a clue. He has lots of reasons. This is a complicated decision. As you know, if you've read, I think you have, I hope you you have, it's hard to read all of Job. It's, it's very lengthy, 42 chapters or better. The children of Job are killed. His livestock are killed. They're stolen. His servants are killed. That's Job 1, 13 through 19. Read it. And all of this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job 1, 20 through 22. All of that happened to Job and he did not blame God for it. He did not say, you didn't protect me, you didn't help me, you weren't with me. He did not say that. Why didn't Job complain? Now, there's some issue with Job in the sense that he does have some wobbly legs in places. But overall, he, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Powerful verse, Job 1, 20 through 22. Job did not accuse God of being the source of evil, in other words. He didn't say, God did this to me, or God allowed this to me. What is the difference between God did this to me and God allowed this to me? Think that through. When Satan struck Job with an infection, and oh, you know how I love infections. It's microbiology, right? Satan, think about this. Satan struck Job with an infection that covered Job head to foot, In all of this, with that infection, Job did not blame God for the infection. If you are going through life saying, God will protect me from all infections, especially a terminal one, and he does not protect you, then what will you say of him? Whose promise do you have? And what is your, (coughs) excuse me, what is your source? Okay, the questions with primacy of this. Why did God allow Satan to facilitate the deaths of Job's family and servants? I used to get a lot of calls. Unfortunately, I don't get them as much anymore from people whose children were killed, especially sons killed in military conflicts where they went to Bible studies and they prayed with all of these other people that their sons would be protected and invariably one or two would not be protected. That happened in the war under H.W. Butch. Was that the Gulf War? I can't remember. But in any event, um, that happened at that time. And they went to their pastor and said, I prayed as much as everybody else prayed. I believed as much as everybody else believed. My son was killed. Why did God kill my son? He said something really interesting. He said, go ask Steve Cronister. That was... My gosh, way over 20 years ago, I think. I thought that was particularly interesting. How did Satan cause fire from heaven to consume the sheep and the remaining servants? Because Satan has a fire do that. In total, Satan sent the Sabaeans to kill and steal, the Chaldeans to kill and steal, fire to consume, and a great wind that killed the sons and daughters of Job. That's four attacks, That's and they had four survivors. What do you think that meant? There was a survivor in each one of those that came and testified to Job what happened. What are, the, what are all the meanings of that? A fire, a great wind, Chaldeans and Sabaeans. How was Satan able to accomplish the fire and the wind, I guess, is the question of the day. You would think that that would be the purview of God only, but Satan was able to do that somehow. How did he do it? The wickedness of the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, I hope you re- that's easily understood, isn't it? 
He has willing participants there. He does not have to urge evil people to do evil. They are predisposed to do evil because they like, they love evil. Satan is able to influence and motivate, maybe even direct evil people to be evil and kill. We have communism and eugenics as the two greatest examples. Of course, we've always had genocide. That's the most apparent. So that's not a problem. But how was Satan able to bring such an overwhelming infection to Job's entire body? Job 2, 7 through 8. That's the second question of the day, but it's still the same day, in case you were wondering. It counts as only the same. Never mind. Did Job's immune response, see where we're in here now? Satan is able to bring something that requires an immune response. Did Job's immune defense system successfully destroy this massive pathogen that he was in? He was, again, covered head to foot with boils. And, and so that sends us, sends us right immediately back to Adam. Adam has an immune response. I asked, why does he have an immune response? And I said, it's because of Genesis 1, 3 through 5. God does not remove all of the darkness. Why doesn't he remove the, all of the darkness? Because he wishes that none should perish, Second Peter. God brought light, the light of life, John 8, 12, John 11, 25, to the darkness. The light did not overcome the darkness at that time. All the light did, if you wish to think of it this way, it's correct, I believe, is separate the darkness from the light. Goats and sheep. This is evil from good. And that is how the Bible actually should be read when you read, man knows, man has now known, now knows. Good from evil. Not good and evil, but good from evil. Genesis 2.17, Genesis 3.22. But here we are now, more questions, don't we? Why divide and separate? Why does he divide and separate? I answered that, I think, a little bit. And you may not immediately think that Adam's immune defense comes into play here, but it certainly does, because that's the original one. And Satan is allowed to infect Job. So here's more problems, not problems, fun things. Okay, not so much fun, but interesting. Does Satan have the wisdom to effect a disease? Well, yeah, he does. Ezekiel 28, 12. He is overflowing. It describes him as a glass where the wisdom is all the way to the top. And the only thing holding the wisdom in the glass is the tension of the outside of the of the of the uh, water, if you will, in this case. can't speak and drink at the same time. So it's overflowing. It's about to go over the edge. That's how much wisdom he's described as having, a full cup, full to the overfilling. So he has the intelligence. So when did he develop a pathogen that causes painful boils? Why did he pick this one? This is an incredibly super intelligent being. He picks boils. Now, he's told not to pick something that would kill Job, right? Don't harm the person. You can't kill it. But how did he, Satan, originate a non-living virus? Or perhaps a bacteriological agent capable of infecting Job to this degree? This, again, is microbiology, it's epidemiology, it's genetic manipulation. And make no mistake, Job 2.7, it's Satan who struck Job. Says it clearly. Wasn't God, Satan. Job nonetheless, it says, held fast to his integrity, and you have to have an integrity def de definition now. His his belief, in my view, part of that integrity is his belief in the goodness of jo of God. Job was not deceived. That attaches him to Adam, as we covered, and both held fast to their integrity. No matter what came to them, both of them believed that God was good. The painful boils are particularly of interest because of Exodus 5. That's right, 9, 9 through 11. What happens there at Exodus 9, 9 through 11? We got Luke 16, 21. And of course we have uh, Revelation 16, 2. What are all of those? Those are boils. 
Revelation 16.2 is the loathsome and malignant foul boil that grows. When you get that mark on your forehead and you get it on your hand, right hand, it, God will on immediately on the sixth, the first bowl judgment is what he will do of the seven bowls. The first one, he will turn that into a loathsome boil. So you'll have a boil on your head and a boil on your hand. And you will know something immediately about that mark. That mark is not life-giving, it's death-giving. Its soul is life-giving. When in fact it's not life as God defines life. It is death as God defines death. That's the first bowl of judgment. Exodus 9, 8 through 12 is the sixth of the ten plagues of Egypt. Luke 16, 21 is the beggar Lazarus. The beggar Lazarus has boils on him. So what is what do we have to know? We have to figure out what is the same and what is different of the beggar Lazarus with respect to Job. The beggar Lazarus is one half of the Lazarus prophecy. Who's the other half? Easy question. Lazarus. So I have Lazarus and Lazarus. I have two Lazaruses. Is that Lazarus, Lazarus I? But I have two of them. And of course, Jonah is in the mix as well because of the four days and the three days make seven days. So I have the sign of Jonah in there. So boils are all over. To fully understand Job, it's necessary to assemble and collect and look at all the boils. But as much fun as humanology and epidemiology is, Job is not that, really. If I had to pick one thing that Job is, one thing about the, the story of Job that, you, that is critical in my view, that is the deaths of the sons and daughters. I think it's centered around the deaths of the sons and daughters. I think the deaths of the son and daughters is the epicenter of the book of Job. And this causes Job 2, 13-26, which is called the curse of Job, because Job curses his existence. It becomes a very powerful soliloquy. So we should read some of that. And I'll just kind of pick and choose out of it. I can't read it all because it's too much and, uh, for today. Now let me find Job. Here he is. And we'll start at 2.13. And then we'll kind of pick at it as we go here. So they sat down with him on the ground. So friends, just to give you the backstory, three friends came. Uh, and they're particular, they're very important to the book of Job and all of this extra meaning that is here. So they sat down with Job on the ground because Job is covered with uh, boils and he's mourning for his children. This is after his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? God, curse God and die. He calls her a, a, a foolish woman. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word for him because they saw that his grief was very great. What is he grieving over? Do you think it's the boils? If you think it's the boils, do not raise your hand. It's not the boils. What is it? It's clearly the death of his sons and daughters. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke. May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said the male child is conceived, may that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. What is the de definition of light? May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of day terrify it as... For that night may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. May it not, oh, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout come into it. May those who curse it, who, who curse the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan, may the stars of its mornings be dark. May it look for light but have none and not see the dawning of the day because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb nor hide sorrow from my eyes. He's talking about his birth. That's how he's described. That's what he's saying. May this have happened to me instead of what I am now enduring, the death of my children. Why did I not die at birth, in case none of that made any sense to you? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Why did the breasts that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest. With the kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. Let me repeat that because this is very important. Why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? 
there the wicked cease from trembling. They don't trouble anymore. And there the weary are at last rest. There the prince, oh gosh, prisoners, I can't see. I have these little spots. So when I say something that's wrong, I know it. But I can't stop myself from saying it. I'm going to repeat this because i can't, I got to get it right. There the wicked cease from troubling. There the willing, the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and the great are there. Why is light given to him who is in misery? What's the definition of light? And life to the better, bitter of soul who long for death but it does not come and search for, for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light, what's the definition of light, given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes from before I eat and my groanings pour out like water for the thing I greatly feared has come upon me. And what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. That is called the curse of Job. Notice, Job never curses God. Job never accuses God of evil. Instead, Job wants to curse who? He wants to curse Job. This is Job cursing Job. Why does Job curse himself? Satan's trying to get him to curse God, right? The wife is trying to get him to curse God and die. If I remove Job, if you, if you remove the hedge around Job, he will curse you to your face. Job doesn't do it. Why doesn't he do it? Notice that Job first raised his existence, his very existence. Then he raised his birth. Lastly, he wanted to be hidden like a stillborn child, never being conceived. And he wanted a quick death outside the womb, the death to death in the womb. So I have death outside and death in. And obviously this is going to connect to Christ and Judas. Matthew 26, 24. Mark 14, 21. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, Christ says. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is delivered. It's not betrayed. Please, please, get rid of betrayed. Judas cannot betray an omniscient outside of time being. He can deliver him. The words are interchangeable. Betrayed is almost in every English translation. Delivered is in the ones that are correct. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is delivered. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Job wishes that he had never been born. Now, if Job had never been born, would he have had any sons and daughters? No. Why doesn't Job curse God? So Judas, with Satan inside of him, delivered Christ. Job, therefore, and Judas somehow interlock. Does Christ know the curse of Job when he talks about it is better for Judas to never have been born? Oh, of course he does. He's the Word. If only we had time to do Job and Judas. But we never have time, do we? Why would it have been good for if Judas had died in the womb? Yeah, I think you can figure that out. Anyway, where was I? <clears throat> Job. Either die when he came out of the secret place. That's Psalm 10.8. That's Psalm 139.13-16. That's the secret place. Die when he came out of the secret place. Job 3.11. Or die in the womb itself and never come out of the secret place. Job 3.16. Job 3.20. Why is light and life given to him in misery to the bitter in soul. Notice that light and life are tied together there for you. So you now know what light is. It's life. It is the light of life, John 8:12. Why is light and life given to him in misery? To the, why is light and life given to him 
who has bitterness, who is bitter in soul, who long for death, but it does not come. That should remind you of someplace in the Bible. That's right. You would say immediately, that's Revelation 9.6. got 150 days where nobody can die and they scream for death and it, cannot, it will not find them. Job brought that up. Job raised the light of life. Again, Genesis 1.3, John 8.12. The light of life is existence. The point for today, yea, a point, and it's today of all things, is that Job chapter 3.19 establishes this wonderful thing that the small, who's the small? Who are the infants? They are there. He says the infants are there. They're there. Obvious question, I hope. They're there with the great the small, the infants, are there with the great. Who are the small and the infants? The ones that died at birth and the ones that died in the womb. They are there. The small have the light of life. The natural flow of the chapter of Job here, chapter Job chapter 3, is to equate the grief of Job's mourning over his children, the grief of Job, because of the death of his children, to be in a grief too great to bear. And it would have been better to have had no life outside the womb or to have died inside the womb. It would have been better. Because if I had died outside the womb, I would have been there. And if I died inside the womb, I would have been there. Now the problem that he has is his sons and daughters. So that's what he's doing. And I phrased that exactly as I hope I should have. Life to Job is in context here. Job 3 is defined in time. Time. The small have no time, but they have existence. They have, they're going to go there. They have very little time, but they have it. You have more time if you are outside the womb. And life are with the weary and the prisoners. But the oppressors are not there. So where is there? Obviously, there needs to be identified, defined, uh, put into a little box if we can do it. But today, it's enough to know that the small are there. That's Second Samuel twelve twenty three. David understood that the small are there, right? So it is life as God defines it. But it's also obviously a place. So where is there? Who is there? Why are they there? Hopefully you have noticed uh, the reference to hidden at Job 3.16 and 3.23 and 3.21. Why was I not hidden? Hidden treasures. Why is the light of life given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Job 3.20 to repeat somewhat. The light of life is existence. So what is hidden? What is the hidden way? Say, who's being, who's he being hidden from? Hidden from what? Satan accuses God of protecting Job with a hedge. Job says, no, the hedge is to prevent Job from finding the grave. If I didn't have this hedge, I could die. Let me die. Did God prevent Job from dying? He told Satan, you can torment him, but you can't kill him. And Job says, you have, you have prevented me from dying. I would rather have died. When my sons and daughters died, I want to die with them. Why am I here? So a whole lot to sift through here in Job 3. I brought it to your attention today that, so that uh, I could just get to Job uh, 42. It's the whole reason I did it. The whole reason I read all of that is because of Job 42 which is absolutely incredible. I hope you see all of Job like this. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. What happened to the male donkeys? Uh Uh-oh. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuch. And all the land, in all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job and their father, 
gave them an inheritance among their brothers. So that's the end of Job. That's the end of the story. How it starts, how it ends. And these sons and daughters are a point of contention, yea, a point, within the theological community. Boy, they fight over this. They do not like my position. I should say that up front. I don't think you'll find my position very often. Sometimes, but not very often. The majority position is that these are not the same children. Job 1.2, Job 1.18, Job 1.13. He has seven children there too. Seven sons, I'm sorry, uh, ten children. He has seven sons and three daughters. Here he's got seven sons and three daughters. The majority position is that they're not the same. Keep in mind that Job was able to accept the losses of his livestock and his servants. Everything, he, he dealt with it. But when his sons and three daughters were killed, his grief was very great. Extraordinarily great. Overwhelmingly great. He tore his mantle. He shaved his head. He fell to the ground when he was told his sons and daughters were dead. The restoration of Job is connected to the wrath of God towards the friends of God. I'm sorry, the friends of Job. As you start studying these three friends that show up and they come to uh, say things to Job. They tell him that the reason, one of the things they say to him, one of the reasons that you are under so much pressure is that you have sinned. Mm -hmm. And that discussion goes on. And we'll have to get to that. But God in in Job 42.7 says this. He says, let me find it. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said of Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls, seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourself a burnt offering and my servant Job will pray for you for I will accept him lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So if you begin to think that the three friends of Job have some kind of positioning that is acceptable, you would be incorrect. It would be of great value to know what is right, what is folly, what is evil. The friends of Job have not spoken what is right of God. Job had spoken what is right of God. So we should study what Job says and then set aside what the friends say for a later time. Focus on what is right of God. Cast out what is not right. It's of great value to know what is right of of God, what Job spoke of God and how it is right and why it is right and what is deserving of wrath. What is the evil that the friends spoke of God? I suspect many of you can intuitively deduce already the, the good from the evil. One is evil, one is good, good from evil. God has his servant Job do what? This is really important, I believe. I hope you have seen it already. He says, I'm going to have Job pray for you or I'm going to take my wrath upon you. If the wrath of God comes upon you, what does that mean? That means the second death. But I'm going to have Job do what? He's going to intercede. He's going to mediate for the friends. And Job does. He prays for them, Job 42.8. It's intercessory prayer, isn't it? Now, who, who does intercessory prayer? Right now, who is interceding and mediating for us? That's a position of the high priest. That's a position of Christ, isn't it? So I know now that Job and also Moses was the mediator for Christ or for Israel. So all of them have this element here. They all mediate for somebody who is dead. Or on the verge of death. And God saves them because of their mediation. I ask a question. If Job is in that line, and Moses is in that line, and Christ is in that line, who else is going to be in that line? Adam's going to be in that line. Romans 4, 5, 14. So, after this prayer, Job is restored. God says, I'm about to take you guys out. Job prays for them. God accepts them because he accepts Job. Because Job has spoken right. 
make that application to Christ. You, hopefully you can see what's going on here. This is a tremendous picture of Christ, a portrait of type. And after this intercessory pro, prayer, sorry, Job is restored with a double portion. I go ahead and count the sheep and the camels, the yoke of oxen and the female don- donkeys in Job 1.3. Gives you a list of them. Do the math. Use your phones. He gets a double portion of what he had in Job 1. But the sons and daughters, the seven sons and three daughters are the exact same number. Why didn't he give them 14 sons and daughters? He doesn't. He gives them seven. Why is that? The daughters are beautiful. And Job gives them an equal inheritance as he gave the sons. They have the same inheritance the daughters have. And they're beautiful. Why are those details included? There's obviously something of great significance contained in this Job 42.15. Don't go fast over it. Place yourself in the situation. Just go ahead and put yourself in there. Replace Job with Steve or Terithithi or Supper Dave, for example. What would you consider restoration if you were in Job's situation? Keep to the forefront that Job's prayer had been accepted by God and God restores the losses of Job when he prayed for his friends or the friends. How does God define restoration? Does Job, whose grief and misery and suffering was so intense He wished for his existence to be revoked, which is impossible. Would Job be comforted, be restored by different sons and daughters? I don't even want a replacement dog, much less a replacement son or daughter. I want the same one. I want the one restored. That's restoration to me. It's not, you get a, I'll give you this new puppy. That's wonderful. I love the puppy, but I want my dog. Would Job be comforted, be restored by different sons and daughters? Is this how God thinks? What are the two promises? Continuity of the soul, mind, spirit, and restoration, uh, I'm sorry, resurrection of the bodies. The question ultimately reduces to what did God do at Job 42.13? What did he do at John 11.43 with Lazarus? How long had the daughters and son been dead? Ask that. How long did it take for 42 chapters to go through? How long had they been dead? That assumes that Job had recovered the bodies of his children. A great wind, remember? Crushed them in a house. What happened to Mrs. Curse God and Die? Job's wife. Why isn't she in the list? That can't be good, right? Lots of problems to resolve in the account of Job. The plan is always the same. This card, that which speaks wrong, is dishonoring to the goodness of God. Take the most Christ-honoring conclusions. Speak right of God. Say what happened here is the highest level of goodness you can conceive. That's probably what happened here. Or at least you're on the right track. Speak right of God. Don't be one of the three friends here. Interpret 13 through 16, Job 42, and make certain that your position is speaking right of God. That's the whole point of the, of the book, is to speak right of God. Don't get through the whole book and then blow it here at 13 of 42, chapter 42. Okay, very covertly last week I began the case that Moses and Elijah were the two witnesses of Revelation 11. That's what was my whole point last week. Hopefully somebody noticed that. The evidences were the pillar of cloud. Gosh, why can't I talk today? The evidences were the pillar of cloud. Which I said was Ezekiel 1.4. That's the whirlwind of Ezekiel 1.4. In Christ, Acts 1.9, and Elijah, 2 Kings 2.1, and Moses, Exodus 19.18-20, all ascend to the pillar of cloud. Remember me saying that? The whirlwind. Elijah goes up in a whirlwind. Ezekiel has seized that whirlwind. And the whirlwind is the pillar of cloud with the throne. Jesus Christ, of course, is the man on that throne. The, the man... God-man on that throne in the pillar of cloud. That's it's. You want to think of it as his uh, motor home. Go ahead. 
the pillar of cloud is him, is him inside of it. He ascends to the throne inside of the pillar of cloud. He, this is God himself in the flesh inside this pillar of cloud with the cherubim. Moses and Elijah ascend into the pillar of cloud, into the whirlwind, which is why both Moses and Elijah are present at Matthew 17, because the pillar of cloud is at Matthew 17. Of course they're there. And uh, uh, here's a really seemingly detached question, a non sequitur of you, as you might suppose. Did Satan witness the restoration of Job? What do you think? He's the one that attacked Job. Does Satan get to see what happened? What does what God does? God restores Job based on what? Again, that's the easy question. Based on what? He spoke right. And he did something else. He prayed for his friends to be what? Saved from wrath. And God restores him. That's the order. Did Satan witness that restoration? More questions that are apparently out of place, but really not. Who wrote the book of Job? It's not a song. No one laughed. Gosh. I should have sung that. Who 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 wrote the book of Job? The Jewish position is that it was... Who do you think wrote the book of Job? All of you on the internet, you can answer that. Okay, don't use your Bibles. Don't run to where the commentations are. Just guess. Guess to yourself. Who do you think wrote it? The Jewish position is, I think, the one that is correct, the valid one. And that is that Moses wrote it. Why must it be that Satan is restrained by God with respect to Job, but is also permitted to infect Job with boils and kill his children with a great wind? We're back to those questions. How does Satan cause and create a great wind? We're back to that. God so easily binds Satan, doesn't he? Puts him in a thousand year prison when the time is for that. Casts him out of, or actually the angelic war casts him out. Revelation 21 through 3, Revelation 20, 10, Matthew 4, 10, Christ orders Satan to leave and Satan has to leave. So God can, can stop Satan, but he doesn't. Very often. So there's this mystery with Job as to why Satan is allowed to inflict such grief and misery but cannot kill Job. What's hidden there? Okay, Moses wrote Job. I think that's true. Does the combination of Job and Moses explain the Jude 9 contention over the body of Moses? The Michael versus Satan. I think that's also true. Next week, I'll put that equation on the board. I'll put Moses, Jude 9, Michael, Satan, the body of Moses... The fact that Job couldn't be killed, all of that in one great big circle. And we'll see if we can get through it. Remember, Satan had wandered the earth and had discovered Job. He knew Job was a problem. Job's a problem. My point is, yea, I have a point. Is that Moses would naturally write Job's story. Moses would be the logical choice. Logical. I'd say he's the only choice to write the book of Job. Uh, he would be the choice of the Holy Spirit. Why is that? I'll give you a first clue, first hint. Moses wrote about who first? Adam. I have a list here. I'll put it in. I'll put Adam in here. I have a list. Adam equals Job. I have mediation. I have Moses. I have Christ. Moses wrote of Adam and Job. Why did he do that? Because he knew. How did he know? How did he learn about how did he learn about Job? Who told him about Job? Who told him about Adam? How did he get all this information to write a book like this? It's unbelievable. Okay, the body of Moses is a problem for Satan. Just as the Job is a problem for Satan. I have two problems for Satan. One of them is Job, the other one is the body of Moses. And the integrity of Job is a problem for Satan as we just covered. But we but we and I mean me still. Job spoke well of God. Job's daughters were the most beautiful of all women in all the land. No woman so beautiful as the daughters of Job. 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 Moses would know why they were beautiful. Were they beautiful before they were restored or were they beautiful after they were restored? 
Moses would know also the significance of what Job said about the character of God, why it was this seminal tectonic testimony. You see, Job almost, Job almost, note the almost there. He almost stands alone in Scripture. God permitted Satan to attack Job, physically kill his servants, kill his children, cover Job with loathsome boils and sores. Who else? Who else in Scripture is like Job? Got another one? Some people might say Lazarus, which is why we put him on the board. Did I get it out of the way here? Did I forget to move? Okay. It's too late now, have not it? No, it's never too late to do something that's right. You can always move it over so they get a last minute back. Okay. Let me get out of the way. There you go. Okay. Lazarus is here. He's covered with sores and boils, just like Job. That's probably a coincidence. Don't pay any attention to it. God just does a lot of coincidences. Uh-oh, my railroad went off. Obvious question, who else in Scripture is like Job? All that Satan all that Satan was allowed to do to Job. Two attacks. Two. Why two? Why not three? Why not one? Why not five? Two. Two separate statements. The two attacks follow the two separate statements of God. God says, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him. None like him. My servant Job, there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who shuns evil, who, who fears God and shuns evil. None like Job. So who's like Job? Who else in Scripture is none like Job? Does that make sense? hope it does. Adam, many of you have answered Adam in your heads. I hope you did. Satan certainly went, was given access to the garden there. He went inside the hedge, didn't he? And uh, he was inside the hedge, inside the garden. And his argument was likely identical, that Adam had no free will. You're protecting him. And the wife of Adam believed Satan, as did the wife of Job. So it's certainly possible that God said of Adam what he said of Job. Neither Adam or Job cursed God. Both held to their held fast to their integrity. Both of them did. And one could say that the children, the sons and daughters of Adam, ultimately died, though not directly as a result of Satan's influences. And it certainly doesn't apply to Cain and Abel. Satan was not involved. So, of all that, though, there's merit here to the Adam-Job, which means Romans 5.14. Again, Adam-Job, Moses Christ. Job and Christ must be compared. Moses 4, I'm sorry, uh, Matthew 4, Luke 4, Mark 1. Come now, right? Because what's Satan doing there? He's come to attack Christ. He doesn't know who he is. He learns really fast. Away with you, Satan. Whoops. This isn't Job. This isn't Adam. Somebody ordered me to go and I had to comply. There was nothing I could do. When God says fall down, everybody falls down. Satan, though, is attempting to corrupt the integrity of a man. He doesn't know it's the God-man. He doesn't know that it's the mystery of the incarnation. He does not know that it is the greatest mystery. The <coughs> First Timothy three sixteen. There is without controversy the greatest mystery. There is. I got a letter from somebody who who was it that said uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum does not consider First Timothy three sixteen to be in the mysteries. Arnold only has eight. Larkin has eleven. I think Larkin is correct doesn't mean that Arnold's wrong. It just means that Larkin is correct. <laughs> Work that out, huh? Satan attempts to corrupt the integrity of a man, the God-man. And guess what? There is none like the God-man. So you could say of Christ, there is no man like this man, and you would be absolutely right. It's a, one of the great does in all history. Of all who exist, there is none like Jesus Christ. He is the I am that I am. He is the pre-existent one. And if Adam equals Job equals Christ, again, then Moses, Deuteronomy 18:15 has to be there. And I should say that Moses and Adam, with their face-to-face access to the I am that I am, Exodus 3:14, Adam obviously got to speak to Christ face-to-face, isn't he? Christ walked in the garden with him. Christ created him, breathed life into him, answered all his questions. This is, this is Adam. 
He saw him face to face. Moses saw him face to face. They naturally would talk to God about Satan and the fallen angels, wouldn't they? First thing they would say, who's this Satan? Adam especially. Adam, you're the second king. First king was the mineral king. Ezekiel 28. You're the second king, the organic Eden. Well, who's Satan? What happened to him? Why do we have darkness? Adam in the garden face to face with God. There's And none, no prophet like Moses knew God face to face. There is none like Job. There is none like Christ. Does Moses experience the physical attack of Satan, which results in the physical death of Satan? Yes or no? Raise your hands if you say... Never raise your hands here. You are so wise, the two of you. Does Moses experience the physical attack of Satan, which results in the physical death of Moses? Does Satan kill Moses? He's not allowed to kill Job. Not allowed to kill Adam. Can't kill Christ. Does he kill Moses? The answer is yes. He does kill Moses. Revelation 11 7. That's very interesting, I think. The Satan man is given permission, is allowed to kill Moses and Elijah. And they lay dead for three and a half days. Not three days, three and a half days. What's this one half? Their bodies are not buried, which is interesting. They're not hidden. They're exposed. They're viewed by the world. The world thinks the death of the two witnesses is evidence that something applies to the Satan man that's amazing. They think, ooh, this proves the Satan man is going to be able to defeat God because he can kill Moses and Elijah. But they're wrong about that. For today, Moses and Job share this element of Satan being permitted to directly, personally inflict damage face to face, if you will. Moses and Job and Elijah cannot kill Job can kill Moses and Elijah. And for those of you who want to get ahead, and we're out of time, the two witnesses, the bodies of the two witnesses, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God. Genesis 2-7, Revelation 11-11, it says the breath of life from God enters their bodies and they rise up and stand. Then the voice of God, his loud voice, not his soft voice, his loud voice, he has a loud voice. Pay attention between the differences. The loud voice resurrects people. It's amazing what the loud voice does. It creates life. Shouts come up here. And Moses and Elijah ascend again. Where do they go? They go into the pillar of cloud again. Again, into the pillar of cloud. So here's a bunch of duh questions. Who is on the throne in the pillar of cloud? Duh. That's Jesus Christ himself. Who spoke? Come up here. That's Jesus Christ himself. Who breathed into the bodies? It's the breath of life. That's Jesus Christ again. That's who did all of that. Next week, more of the same. Not like I can do something new. Same old, same old.